I'd like to start tonight's talk by reading from the Metta Sutra, uh, the sutra that you started to learn to chant last night. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living things. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. This is our natural mind, this mind that is luminous and gentle and kind and limitless. We're all capable of tuning into this kind of boundless love. It's in our genetic makeup of our minds and our hearts. But it doesn't always feel this way. I'm sure today, as you've been practicing, it hasn't always felt like radiating kindness in all directions. Tonight I'd like to talk about five challenges or obstacles that can come up when we're practicing metta that can cloud this luminous metta mind. They're traditionally called the five hindrances. I don't like to use that word so much, so I'm going to talk about them as the five challenges of practice. So these five challenges are attached love, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness, and doubt. So when we meditate, uh, these obstacles are going to come up. They're going to come visit. These challenges are going to be part of our practice. Learning to work with them is part of our practice. We sometimes have this tendency to think that if they come up, that that's bad practice, or that we're not practicing, or that they're in the way. And if we can get rid of them, then we can meditate. We might think that we're a bad meditator because we experience some of these challenges. But they're part of the practice. And they're actually our teachers. They're our doorway into truth, learning how to work with Well, all of them, we will experience all of them, but most of us have our favorite one or two. 
And then sometimes we get whomped with all five at once and we call that a multiple hindrance attack. <laughs> So how do we work with these challenges? Mindfulness is our most important tool, so to recognize them when they arise in our practice. We want to cultivate a relationship of being aware when these challenges come up and not getting lost in them. So mindfulness is our protection. So for example, when attached love is operating, we can notice that, and that can protect us from being confused and thinking that that is metta. It can protect us from getting lost in the attached love. With all of these challenges, eventually we have to learn to make peace with them in some way. And there are ways that we work with them to see uh, if skillfully we can um, balance our energy or uh, not get lost in these mind states, these challenges. But sometimes they're just going to want to stick around for a while. And so we have to learn actually to make friends with them. So we look at our relationship to these challenges. When aversion comes up, we look at our relationship to it. Are we able to accept it even while we work skillfully with it? Or are we rejecting it? If we reject these experiences, we're going to suffer. If we learn to be aware of them and to hold them with kindness, then they don't have to be a problem and we can find true metta in the middle of them. When we do Vipassana practice, which many of you are familiar with, the insight practice, when these hindrances come up, when aversion comes up, or sleepiness, or restlessness, uh, we are with the experience as it's happening. Um, Mindfulness is paying attention to our present experience. With metta practice, metta practice is more of a concentration practice. So with metta, we're directing our attention over and over again to love, to metta. And sometimes um, we can get a little whomped by the hindrances when they do come up, or these challenges when they do come up, because we haven't been tracking them. So we may be doing metta and everything's going fine, and then um, our energy drops, or um, our attention slips. And then sometimes people, if they're used to Vipassana practice, they may be surprised by how uh, strongly these challenges can come up with metta practice. So I just wanted to say that if that's your experience, um, it's not uncommon in a metta retreat, so don't worry about it. So let's look at each one of these five in a little more detail. The first challenge is attached love. Part of our journey of metta is learning what metta isn't, what masquerades as metta. What we call love often has a lot of attachment in it. Attached love is called the near neighbor 
or the traditionally it's the near enemy. Um, it's a little fierce. <laughs> um, so I call it the near neighbor. So attached love is the near neighbor of metta because it can masquerade as metta. We can think that it is metta. So attached love would be expectation, attachment to a certain outcome, neediness, bargaining, control, demand. It's kind of like, I'll love you if, if you love me back. I'll love you if you act a certain way. So love in this case means that I want you or I want life to be a certain way. So it's actually love with um, a lot of selfishness in it. Sometimes it's called selfish, um, a selfish kind of love. So we shouldn't think that there's anything wrong when this comes up. It does come up. It will come up in your practice. But what we want to do is to start to see it when it comes up so that we know what it is. With attached love, we will feel that there's some kind of tightness in our metta. So metta, genuine metta, is very open, open-hearted, open. It's an offering. And then when we are offering somebody that metta and we start to feel like it goes, it gets tight, it starts to contract, that's when the attached love is coming in. One woman was telling me about how she was doing metta for her baby. So she was like, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you sleep through the night without a bottle. (laughs) May you no longer pee-pee in mommy and dad's bed. (laughs) She's like, ah, a little attached love moved in there. (laughs) I really want to emphasize that It's not like this is a problem if this comes up. I really want to emphasize that we don't need to judge ourselves. This is an exploration. Our metta practice, we're we're learning. We're learning about what love is. And we can learn for years and years more and more about love. So every time that we see that this is happening, that there's attachment, control, expectation, need, we can, we can embrace it as um, a teaching on our path rather than judging it as something that's not supposed to be happening. Attached love, as I said, can masquerade as metta because they're similar in that both of them see the good in the other. They both appreciate the other. And that way they're similar. It's like Michelle said, when we, um, one way to think of metta is we tune in on the radio dial. Actually, it's kind of different these days with the digital, right? But in the old days, we used to, you know, you'd tune the, the dials. So we're tuning the dials uh, to tune into metta. So attached love would be like when it's a little bit off of the station and you have static mixed in. You can still hear the station, but the static is the attachment. So true metta, which we're orienting towards, 
is unconditional. It loves no matter what. There's no conditions on it. There's no need. So we say that um, true metta is balanced with equanimity, with the ability to accept things as they are, to accept ourselves as we are, to accept others as they are. So true metta has this understanding about life, understanding that although we wish others well, they won't always be well, that every life is a mix of joy and sorrow, that we can't protect others from suffering, that things change, that those we love we will eventually in some form be separated from. True metta can hold all of that. But that's a lot, right? That's why it's so challenging for us. And I, and I just want a, a little caveat here. When I talk about need, obviously there's a way that we humans need each other and that, that's, that's fine, that's great, that's okay. And we can talk about need like this and we can talk about need like this. So that's the... Um, it's really okay. Also when we talk about attachment in relationships, we sometimes use the word attachment in a healthy way, meaning commitment. It's great to be committed to each other. It's great to um, uh, form bonds with each other and all of that. So I want to make sure that I'm, we're clear about that distinction. And um, so what, when we use the word attachment, I often prefer the word commitment to kind of separate it from this kind of attachment that I'm talking about, which is really a contraction. So loving deeply and openly is challenging because of this aspect of the way life is. I mean, our job is, can we stay open and loving even knowing that we can't control others' destiny, even knowing that we'll ultimately be separated from others? Rilke said, it's a great undertaking just to learn to love one person. Our hearts really need time to understand metta. They need time to learn to relax and open because an open heart faces life as it is. Not an easy thing to do. Korean master Sansanim says, great love, great sadness. True love isn't cheap. It has a price. It has that price of vulnerability in the face of this world as it is. So how do we work with this attached love when it comes up? First, as I said, we can just notice. We can notice when the metta begins to be colored by attachment or desire. 
And we can see if we can um, continue sending metta or using the phrases, if that's helpful, and just orienting towards the, um, the purity of metta. So we can look to see is the energy behind our metta open-hearted or contracted and orienting towards the openness. So we keep going and we start to learn the flavor of attached love and the flavor of metta, of unconditional love. And we usually recommend that we start with the most uncomplicated person, or a uncomplicated person, because um, there's a little less likelihood that attached love will come up and that we can um, start to understand the flavor of more unconditional love. And then some of you have already found out that with family members, it gets a little more complicated. It starts to get sticky. There may be expectations or strong desires for things to be a certain way. So often, if if attached love comes up and it's really strong, and we can't kind of find our way through it by continuing, then we would go to a person who was... um, easier. And that's often a person who's a little more distant. A grandson instead of a son, for example. A grandparent instead of a parent. A teacher, somebody a little more distant. So sometimes we might be working with somebody and a lot of attachment will come up and then they've actually started to move towards the difficult category. Each day we're going to be adding categories. So we've been working with self and with the benefactor. Tomorrow we'll add a good friend um, or family member. The next day we'll add a neutral person. Next day a difficult person. And then we'll move towards all beings. So you can see that each day gets to be a little more challenging. So sometimes somebody we thought was easy, they, they might shift to another category on us. So this is our exploration to understand attached love and understand unconditional love. The second challenge that can come up in our practice of metta is aversion. And this is called the far neighbor of metta because we don't usually confuse it with metta. It's a far neighbor. It doesn't even live in the same town. Anger, resentment, annoyance, judgment, fear, sadness, all of these fall under aversion. When I was first introduced to metta, the first um, retreat I did in 1984, I had so much aversion towards it that I wouldn't even do it when they had like a metta sitting in most Vipassana retreats, they'll have one hour a day where they do a metta sitting. And I wouldn't go to them. Uh, The thought of metta actually almost made me nauseous. (laughs) I had so much aversion to it. (laughs) 
And I only started to do it out of desperation. Like eight years into my practice, I was, uh, I was very aware that I was uh, suffering quite a bit. In fact, I was more aware that I was suffering than before I had started practicing. Um, but I felt kind of like stuck, like I just didn't have the power of mind to feel like I was um, able to move through it all, uh, through it at, in any way. Or, or maybe, I, obviously, it, something happened in eight years, but I was still feeling quite stuck. So I went to my teacher and it's like, you know, what can I do? And he said, do a metta retreat. And I was, that was the last thing in the world I wanted to hear. I was like, no, anything but that. <laughs> um, he said, you know, I think that'll really help. So I trusted him, and I, and I was desperate. I needed to do something. So I did. I came here, and I did a um, two-month metta retreat. And I love metta. And it, and it really transformed my practice. Many of us, um, as I said, will have a tendency towards one or another uh, hindrance or challenge. And my favorite is, is aversion. And metta, the Buddha prescribed metta um, specifically for working with aversion, people with a lot of fear or anger. Um, and so doing metta for this period of time, it was like my heart finally started to soften and at the same time get strong. That's the great thing about metta, is it both strengthens our hearts and softens them. And it's a great combination. And it gave me the strength to go deeper into suffering and, um, and <laughs> be able to come out the other side. So metta is, um, is sometimes called a, um, a solvent like a solvent for the hardness, the anger, and the fear within our hearts. And that will come up. Aversion can and will come up in our metta practice. It comes up for us to see. The resentments and the regrets and the anger in our heart will come up to be held with kindness. So we might be surprised. We might be doing metta for a good friend, somebody we love, and then all, all of a sudden the thought will be, well, what about the time that they did that to me? <laughs> or, um, you know, just like some kind of uh, past difficulty will surface. This is not uncommon. And as we move into more complicated relationships or even working with a difficult person, even more common. And it's part of our journey of discovery. Just like with attached love, it's not like this is bad or not supposed to be happening. It's our discovery of what is blocking the metta in our hearts. So metta practice is about learning open-heartedness and kindness, but part of the road there is actually experiencing our unkindness. There was a Zen teacher who said, practice is about learning to be kind, 
but we will never be kind until we truly experience our unkindness. We have the courage to see this when we do metta practice. During that long um, first metta retreat, Michelle was my teacher, actually. And I remember going into her one time and saying, I've realized that I've never wholeheartedly wished anyone well in my entire life. I was too afraid. I was afraid that if I gave love away, that there wouldn't be enough for me. And it was great to see that. Obviously, it was somewhat shocking and painful to understand that, but it was like to see it then gave me the potential to um, go beyond that conditioning. So again, when aversion comes up in our metta practice, we notice when it's there. And... uh, it's often easier to notice than the attached love because the attached love can be kind of sneaky, a little more tricky. But aversion, it's like, oh yeah, hello. Um, and if we can, we just uh, gently acknowledge it, put it aside, and continue with the metta or continue with the phrases if we're using them. And if that's not working, we actually back off and go to somebody easier. Sometimes we have a hard time understanding that in metta, we actually go towards ease. So if we're doing a family member and we get angry at them, for example, and we, and we do the phrases and the anger keeps coming up, we would then go back to our benefactor, somebody easy, kind of, it's like we juice up on the metta again. And then we can later go back to that family member and see if the metta is strong enough to, to continue even if we have um, remembered that thing that made us angry. Now, sometimes we just can't find anybody easy enough. The aversion comes up and it's really strong. Then we can um, take some time to be with it. We can use the mindfulness practice and feel the aversion in our body, our minds, hold it with kindness, give it some... Uh, loving attention. So we can see if we can surround the aversion with metta. So we can even send metta to the aversion and see what happens. Holding it as gently as possible. And then eventually it will change and we can go back to doing the metta practice. Now what if the resentment doesn't melt or the aversion seems like it's still continuing? Um, We can refocus and remember that we're orienting towards the good in someone. So we may be working with somebody, some resentment comes up, we, we, we refocus and we reorient the mind to the goodness in that person. And um, if we can't find a whole lot of goodness at that moment, we can just connect with our shared humanity, our shared fallibility as human beings, our shared wish to be happy.
At times in our metta practice, we'll find that it's important to focus some on forgiveness. Forgiveness is the letting go of resentment and judgment in our hearts. We may need to forgive ourselves. We may remember things that we did that hurt others. I think as a species, we're somewhat slow. We make a lot of mistakes. And part of metta is that softening around our own mistakes, others' mistakes, um, a greater capacity to forgive and to hold. Just hold that truth. If we're really going to feel metta, we're going to have to get pretty good at forgiving ourselves and forgiving others. And this doesn't mean that we become doormats, that we forget um, or condone behavior that's not okay. Sometimes it's important to remember an act of injustice so that it's not repeated. We can still use discerning wisdom But with forgiveness, we're actually liberating our own hearts and minds from being locked down in anger and resentment. So forgiveness is about freeing our hearts so that we can feel the metta. Also, forgiveness can't be forced. For me, it's more of a process rather than a destination. And for me, the way that um, forgiveness evolves is by actually allowing the anger and the resentment to be there. So it's not trying to get rid of it, but allowing it to be there with care, allowing it to be there with kindness. And then my own experience is that when we're able to do that, that um, understanding begins to dawn. Understanding. And when understanding comes, then forgiveness is possible. We also start to see in our practice that sometimes aversion comes up as a kind of protection. Our open-heartedness can sometimes leave us feeling vulnerable. It's a hard world, this world that changes constantly, all the time. And sometimes we close our hearts as a kind of protection. And that's okay. Open heart, closed heart, it's, um, it's got its own rhythm. And we can learn to respect that rhythm. And until we have stronger protections until our metta is stronger and our equanimity is stronger, sometimes we need to close our hearts. It's a continuing development of, of strengthening metta and strengthening equanimity so that our hearts can bear being open. And then when they need to rest, they may close. That's okay. We can respect our speed and our process in this practice. There's a poem by um, Hadowich of Antwerp, 
a Christian nun from many, many centuries ago called Love's Maturity. In the beginning, love satisfies us. When love first spoke to me of love, how I laughed at her in return. But then she made me like the hazel trees, which blossom early in the season of darkness and bear fruit slowly. Metta is a journey that matures over time. So let's move on to the next uh, two challenges, sleepiness and restlessness, which um, sometimes are a related pair. Sleepiness being low energy and restlessness being an excess of energy. So technically called sloth and torpor. Sloth is that physical nodding off, and torpor is the foggy mind that can accompany it. And then restlessness, that physical, the body may feel jumpy, want to move, the mind may be all over the place, not want to settle, too much energy. So I'm going to give a list of uh, balancers or remedies for sleepiness. It's a long list. A version, and actually, I don't have much sleepiness in my practice these days, but in my early days, I majored in aversion and sleepiness. So I was looking at my list of remedies for sleepiness and restlessness, and like sleepiness is a lot longer. I thought, hmm, <laughs> maybe that's because I know so much more about it. <laughs> so don't try to remember them all because it's like a long list, but if you see one that kind of uh, sticks out for you, you can. Put it in your little um, toolbox of things to do when sleepiness comes to visit. So when we're doing the metta practice, there's several different parts that we're holding at once. Often we're holding some kind of image or sense of the person that we're sending metta to, either ourselves or somebody else. And then we're holding the um, intention to cultivate metta or the phrases, which is a, an expression of that intention. And then we're holding the meaning of what we're wishing for others. So there's really three parts. And if you're sleepy, you can see if you might want to give a little more energy to one of those three parts. So perhaps if you're sending metta to somebody, you might want to see if you can give a little more energy to the image of them. Or you might want to um, make the phrases longer. That kind of, if you have to work a little harder, it picks up the energy. So we could have the phrase, may may you be happy and peaceful. So may you be happy and peaceful of mind and heart. A little more work. Um, may you be strong and healthy of body. May you be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. So you can make longer uh, phrases, and sometimes that will pick up the energy a little bit. You can walk outside. You can walk a little faster. Sometimes 
Sometimes it's helpful to bring in uh, another person if you're sleepy, to bring in somebody new. I'm sure you've noticed that when you bring in somebody new, the energy goes up. Often that happens. You can also remember inspiring people who uh, manifest a lot of metta as an inspiration for your practice. Michelle mentioned Deepama, the um, Indian saint who was known for her metta. Somebody once asked her what was in her mind, and she replied, concentration, peace, and metta. That sounds pretty nice. Or some people might be inspired by by Jesus, who's known as a, um, a person of great love. Or some people might be inspired by our very own um, American uh, Martin Luther King Jr., an amazing person uh, when he talked about love, nonviolence, love even towards those who cause harm. One of my favorite inspirations is uh, Mia Tong Sayadaw from the Sagain Hills region of, of Burma. Michelle and I um, teach a retreat there in January every year, uh, politics permitting, um, a three-week retreat in this just lovely area of Burma, the spiritual center of Burma, known as the Sagain Hills region. And there's this um, Sayadaw or... Uh, teacher, who we've nicknamed the happy monk, because he's so happy. And you get in his, um, when you meet him or you're with him, he's like just this fountain of happiness, and it's so contagious. I once um, asked him, because I was quite curious, I asked him why he was so happy, Seemed like an important thing to know. <laughs> and it's interesting because I kind of expected him to give a little bit of a wisdom answer. And, um, and he said, I'm, I'm happy because I have no ill will towards anybody. And when they, um, a lot of times traditionally metta is explained as the absence of ill will. So basically he said, I feel metta towards everybody. He's like, I have no ill will towards you, or you, or anybody, or the snakes. And he's just like having a good time talking about how he doesn't have ill will. So when I think of him, I feel so inspired with metta. And perhaps you have somebody who does that for you, and that can help energize us in our practice if we feel low. Another way to get more energy in our practice is um, to take notice of the beauty around us. It's just a gorgeous time of year, beautiful flowers, the green of the trees. It's still slightly different color greens. It hasn't quite you know, gotten uniform for the summer. And just to, if you're really feeling tired, you can go outside and just absorb some of the beauty around here. And really allow it to uplift your spirits. So 
So sometimes we will try many different things and we'll still be sleepy. As a, um, you know, sometimes we all have our energy ups and downs. And we can't always be on 100%. That's just not how we function as human beings, right? So just to understand that um, there'll be ups and downs in your energy during the day. And you might even start to see a pattern to it. Like I know my particular pattern is I have a lot of energy in the morning. And then it just goes downhill the rest of the day. You know, some people are the opposite in the morning. They can barely keep their eyes open. But then, you know, at 10 p.m., they're doing great. So we can just learn that we have our own um, rhythms and respect that. It's okay. It's not personal. Restlessness. So restlessness and excess of energy. So we work to calm the energy. One way we do this is by simplifying our practice. Concentration develops, calm and concentration develop under, um, better under simplicity. So by simplifying, we may just use one phrase or we may just use one word. And we may just stay with one person, keep it really simple. We may um, also go outside, walk a little faster to absorb some of that energy. Or we might find that actually if we walk slower, it helps the restlessness um, subside. So you can see for yourself. We can also um, meet the restlessness with metta, kind of... uh, Hold the restlessness in um, a larger meta field. Allow it to be. Be kind to it. Sometimes when there's a lot of restlessness, it's because there's some emotion that hasn't been identified that's um, agitating the mind. So you can, if there's a lot of restlessness, you can just take a moment and say, you know, ask, am I feeling something? And it's not like you need to um, get out your shovel and do an archaeological dig, but um, just like, oh, is there something that wants to be seen? And just um, check that out. Maybe there may not be, but sometimes just saying hi and noticing what's going on will help the mind calm down. And again... Some people have a tendency towards restlessness. It's not personal. It's, um, it's okay, and we don't need to fight it. Restlessness, hello. Hold it with kindness. So the last um, challenge is doubt. And doubt can be one of the more difficult ones because it can be somewhat paralyzing. But again, it can be insidious. We, can't, um, we don't always recognize it's happening and we'll kind of believe all the stories it makes up. So we might doubt the practice. We might doubt the timing. We might doubt our abilities. We might doubt the teachers. 
And with metta, there's a special form of doubt, and it may be that we will doubt our ability to love. So there might be the feeling like, I can't do this, or I don't know how to do this, or I'm not capable of doing this. Or we might find that we um, doubt that we deserve love, that we're somehow flawed. The Buddha said you can look the world over and not find anyone more deserving of love than yourself. It's a powerful affirmation of each person's worthiness. Metta can challenge our view of the world. It can challenge our notions about abundance and scarcity. It can challenge our um, views about safety and protection. So this may bring up doubt at times. And this is great. Embrace those questions. Doubt's not a problem if it, if it fuels us to be more interested to ask questions, to look deeply. If doubt causes us to move back and away from our practice, then it can, um, it can hinder us. But if it inspires us to search more deeply, to take the questions that come up in our minds and really look more deeply, it can actually be helpful for our practice. So when doubt comes up, it's good to be mindful of it again. Mindfulness, just to notice doubt is happening. There's a number of stories from the time of the Buddha, um, a number I've read from the books of the nuns. And what will happen is there will be a certain nun, and she'll go out, do her alms round, eat her lunch. She'll go out to the woods, find a great place to meditate, sit down, begin to meditate and um, do her practice. And then Mara will come. And Mara is like the Buddhist um, trickster. Maybe kind of like the Buddhist devil, but that word's kind of intense. <laughs> and he's not, I don't think of him quite the same way, but the, kind of like the trickster. So he'll come up to the nun and he'll, and he'll say things like, what are you meditating for? Why don't you just go have fun? I mean, life is short. This practice isn't going to help you at all. You're missing out on everything. So it's, you know, stories along those lines. And inevitably what the nun will do is she will say, I see you, Mara. I know you, Mara. And that's enough. Mara will just go, oh. You know, actually, in the, in, the, in the scriptures, it says, you know, Mara, sad and dejected, <laughs> um, walked off. <laughs> it's like if, 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 we, if we can identify those, those, that doubt and see it clearly, that can be enough sometimes. It's like, oh, hello, Mara. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> We can also notice the relationship of energy to doubt. Doubt will often come up when our energy is low. And if we know that, 
it can help us not to take it so seriously when it does show up. Another thing that helps with doubt is um, uh, what we call verified experience. And that's a seeing for ourselves that the practice works. And sometimes that takes time. Just a few minutes before I gave this talk, I came across um, a short poem or part of a poem by Walt Whitman. He said, I am larger and better than I thought. I did not think I held so much goodness. Maybe we'll have a moment of that this week. But that moment can be enough to verify for ourselves what we're capable of. So don't look for sustained hours and hours of pure, blissful metta. But maybe notice the moments when your heart is able to be open and larger and better than you thought, when you see how much goodness you hold within. Don't underestimate the power of a moment of that. Another way to work with doubt is, um, I call it making a date with doubt. So some of these questions that doubt may bring up are important. They're questions that at some point you might want to think about. But I, when I say make a date with doubt, you can say, well, doubt, how about if we sit down next Friday and think about these things? Sometimes that will help. Sometimes that will be enough. And the reason is so that it doesn't sabotage us now. A lot of the, sometimes some of these doubts, is this the right practice, can I do this, all these things, if we um, entertain them too much during the retreat, they can, they can sabotage, they can take our energy. And so if we can say to doubt, these are important questions, and later, later we'll have time to think about them. Sometimes that helps. And then lastly, for doubt, um, I'm going to recommend uh, um, something that Greg told me that he said in the question and answer period the first afternoon. Um, Lower your standards. We often have like really high expectations of what we should be able to do. And sometimes they're not actually that realistic. Now, developing metta is, um, is at times an amazingly challenging practice. At other times, it'll flow, and it's great. It just comes. It's natural. It's easy. But at other times, it's quite um, challenging. And this is not some personal failing of our own, but this is just the human mind. A story from Annie Lamott, um, Plan B, Faith, something like that. She's talking about this um, friend of hers named David. 
And she says, when David insists that you are fine exactly the way you are, you find yourself almost believing him. When he talks about unconditional love, he gives you a new lease on life because the way he explains it, you may for the first time believe that even you could taste of this. As he explains it, in the Church of 80% Sincerity, which is his church, Church of 80% Sincerity, everyone has come to understand that unconditional love is a reality, but with a shelf life of about 8 to 10 seconds. Instead of beating yourself up because you feel it only fleetingly, you should savor those moments when they appear. As David puts it, we might say to our beloved, Honey, I've been having these feelings of unconditional love for you for the last 8 to 10 seconds. (laughs) Or, Darling, I'll love you till the very end of dinner. Even at those times when it appears that nothing's happening in our practice, we're planting seeds. And we're planting really beautiful seeds. Metta is a beautiful quality to offer ourselves and this world. And so the seeds, each intention to call forth metta, each phrase, is like planting a seed in a garden. And it may blossom now, It may blossom later. When the conditions are right, it will blossom. We can remember that at times of doubt. I want to end with a story. Um, from Kitchen Table Wisdom by Rachel Naomi Raymond. And it's a story about um, challenge and transformation and how our challenges can inspire us to learn more about love. So the story that Rachel is telling about is she was working as a therapist with... um, somebody who'd really suffered quite deeply in her early life. She'd been an alcoholic. She'd lost her children because of her drinking problem, and um, eventually she went into treatment and and recovery. And so in uh, this story, um, Rachel, the therapist, decides she's going to teach this woman um, a heart meditation. And I don't know exactly what meditation it was, but some kind of heart meditation. So she says... During one of our next visits, I taught this meditation to her and went over, with it over, went over it with her very carefully. It took the entire session, but I felt it had been worth it. I reminded her of the importance of doing the meditation every day. She said she would. A week later, things seemed unchanged. I asked if she'd been doing the heart meditation. Sheepishly, she said she'd only done it once. So we spent the remainder of the session going over it again. The following week, she returned anxious and distressed. I asked once again about the meditation. No, she had not done it at all. In annoyance, she said that she was not really very interested in doing it, that there was another issue that was troubling her. She would rather talk about that than the heart meditation. 
In a shaky voice, she told me that in the past few weeks, a rat had invaded her apartment. She felt it was unclean, even vicious, and it upset her that such a thing would enter the beautiful space that she had so painstakingly created for herself. Despite the obvious importance of this to her and its plausible symbolic value, I was frustrated. At the same time, I had a limited sense of the elegance of the spiritual and the many ways that it can show itself. Talking about the heart was far more important to me, and I thought that the rat was in the way. With a sigh, I said, tell me more. So I'm going to skip the next paragraph. Basically, the woman tried to get different people to help her, her son, her friends at work, the superintendent, and no avail. The rat was still there. But um, So then Rachel says, what have you done about it? I asked her. It turned out that other than putting away the edibles, she hadn't done very much. Finally, she became attentive. I was struck by the number of people who had become involved. Somewhat unkindly, I pointed this out. I think this is your rat, I told her. It will probably be there until you personally do something about it. And then I felt a lot of regret. So the next week, she comes back to her appointment. She's just radiant. So the therapist asks her again about the heart meditation. It had completely slipped her mind. But a lot had happened. She told me that she had left. She had been very hurt and angry, and she thought she wouldn't come back to therapy. She'd been angry for days. But then she began to wonder if there might be something to what I was saying. So she had gone to the hardware store to see if she could, if they had a trap that would not hurt the rat. She bought a have a heart trap, but couldn't bring herself to use it. Traps were just not her thing. She had felt completely overwhelmed. I'm just too soft-hearted, she told me. Finally, it came to her that if it really was her rat, she could deal with it in her way. She had gone to the pound and found a kitten that no one wanted and brought it home. She had not seen the rat since. Her eyes became wet. She had not had a pet since she was four when her father had brought home a puppy. She had loved it. Her mother had told her she could have it if she took care of it herself. But four is far too young for that sort of thing. She had tried, but the puppy was too much for her. Her mother had a hot temper, especially when she was drinking. One day, the puppy would not stop barking and whining, and she could not understand what it wanted and calm it. Enraged, her mother had taken it into the bathroom and drowned it. I was stunned. Softly, she told me that she had always believed this was her fault, that she had not loved the puppy well enough. But the kitten was doing well. It was growing, and every day when she came home from work, it came to meet her and rub up against her legs and purr. Finally, her tears overflowed. It really is growing, she said. Perhaps my love is enough now. So sometimes we've been wounded by love. But love's like a perennial garden. It comes back. It grows back. And as we do this practice, we can learn to trust that our love is enough, that it's just enough. Let's sit for a minute. 
or sutra chanting at nine tonight. All are welcome. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.